Section six of Seven Men by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I unpacked my things and went down to await luncheon. It was good to be here again in this little old sleepy hostel by the sea. Hostel, I say, though it spelt itself without an S and even placed a circumflex above the O. It made no other pretension. It was very cosy indeed. I had been here just a year before, in mid-February, after an attack of influenza, and now I had returned after an attack of influenza. Nothing was changed. It had been raining when I left, and the waiter, there was but a single, a very old waiter, had told me it was only a shower. That waiter was still here, not a day older, and the shower had not ceased. Steadfastly it fell on the sands, steadfastly into the iron-grey sea. I stood looking out at it from the windows of the hall, admiring it very much. There seemed to be little else to do. What little there was, I did. I mastered the contents of a blue handbill, which, pinned to the wall just beneath the framed engraving of Queen Victoria's coronation, gave token of a concert that was to be held, or rather was to have been held some weeks ago, in the town hall for the benefit of the lifeboat fund. I looked at the barometer, tapped it, and was not the wiser. I wandered to the letter-board. These letter-boards always fascinate me. Usually some two or three of the envelopes stuck into the cross-garterings have a certain newness and freshness. They seem sure they will yet be claimed. Why not? Why shouldn't John Doe Esquire or Mrs. Richard Rowe turn up at any moment? I do not know. I can only say that nothing in the world seems to be more unlikely. Thus it is that these young bright envelopes touch my heart even more than do their dusty and sallowed seniors. Sour resignation is less touching than impatience for what will not be, than the eagerness that has to wane and wither. Soured beyond measure these old envelopes are. They are not nearly so nice as they should be to the young ones. They lose no chance of sneering and discouraging. Such dialogues as this are only too frequent. A very young envelope. Something in me whispers that he will come today. A very old envelope. He? Well, that's good. Ha, ha, ha. Why, didn't he come last week when you came? What reason have you for supposing he'll ever come now? It isn't as if he were a frequenter of the place. He's never been here. His name is utterly unknown here. You don't suppose he's coming on the chance of finding you? A very young envelope. It may seem silly, but something in me whispers. A very old envelope. Something in you? One has only to look at you to see there's nothing in you but a note scribbled to him by a cousin. Look at me. There are three sheets closely written in me. The lady to whom I am addressed. A very young envelope. Yes, sir, yes, you told me all about her yesterday. A very old envelope. And I shall do so today and tomorrow and every day and all day long. That young lady was a widow. She stayed here many times. She was delicate, and the air suited her. She was poor, and the tariff was just within her means. She was lonely, and had need of love. I have in me for her a passionate avowal, and strictly honourable proposal, written to her, after many rough copies, 
by a gentleman who had made her acquaintance under this very roof. He was rich, he was charming, he was in the prime of life. He had asked if he might write to her. She had flutteringly granted his request. He posted me to her the day after his return to London. I looked forward to being torn open by her. I was very sure she would wear me and my contents next to her bosom. She was gone. She had left no address. She never returned. This I tell you, and shall continue to tell you, not because I want any of your callow sympathy, no thank you, but that you may judge how much less than slight are the probabilities that you yourself... But my reader has overheard these dialogues as often as I. He wants to know what was odd about this particular letter-board before which I was standing. At first glance I saw nothing odd about it, but presently I distinguished a handwriting that was vaguely familiar. It was mine. I stared, I wondered. There is always a slight shock in seeing an envelope of one's own after it has gone through the post. It looks as if it had gone through so much, but this was the first time I had ever seen an envelope of mine eating its heart out in bondage on a letter-board. This was outrageous. This was hardly to be believed. Sheer kindness had impelled me to write to A. V. Lader, Esquire, and this was the result. I hadn't minded receiving no answer. Only now, indeed, did I remember that I hadn't received one. In multitudinous London the memory of A. V. Lader and his trouble had soon passed from my mind. But, well, what a lesson not to go out of one's way to write to casual acquaintances. My envelope seemed not to recognize me as its writer. Its gaze was the more piteous for being blank. Even so had I once been gazed at by a dog that I had lost, and after many days found in the Battersea home. I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, claim me, take me out of this. That was my dog's appeal. This was the appeal of my envelope. I raised my hand to the letter-board, meaning to effect a swift and lawless rescue, but paused at the sound of a footstep behind me. The old waiter had come to tell me that my luncheon was ready. I followed him out of the hall, not, however, without a bright glance across my shoulder, to reassure the little captive that I should come back. I had the sharp appetite of the convalescent, and this the sea air had wetted already to a finer edge. In touch with a dozen oysters and with stout, I soon shed away the unreasoning anger I had felt against A. V. Lader. I became merely sorry for him that he had not received a letter which might perhaps have comforted him. In touch with cutlets, I felt how sorely he had needed comfort, and anon, by the big bright fireside of that small dark smoking-room where, a year ago, on the last evening of my stay here, he and I had at length spoken to each other, I reviewed in detail the tragic experience he had told me, and I simply reveled in reminiscent sympathy with him. A. V. Lader. I had looked him up in the visitor's book on the night of his arrival. I myself had arrived the day before, and had been rather sorry there was no one else staying here. A convalescent by the sea likes to have someone to observe, to wonder about at meal-time. I was glad when on my second evening I found seated at the table opposite to mine another guest. 
I was the gladder because he was just the right kind of guest. He was enigmatic. By this I mean that he did not look soldierly or financial or artistic or anything definite at all. He offered a clean slate for speculation, and thank heaven he evidently wasn't going to spoil the fun by engaging me in conversation later on. A decently unsociable man, anxious to be left alone. The heartiness of his appetite, in contrast with his extreme fragility of aspect and limpness of demeanour, assured me that he, too, had just had influenza. I liked him for that. Now and again our eyes met and were instantly parted. We managed, as a rule, to observe each other indirectly. I am sure it was not merely because he had been ill that he looked interesting. Nor did it seem to me that a spiritual melancholy, though I imagined him sad at the best of times, was his sole asset. I conjectured that he was clever. I thought he might also be imaginative. At first glance I had mistrusted him. A shock of white hair, combined with a young face and dark eyebrows, does somehow make a man look like a charlatan. But it is foolish to be guided by an accident of colour. I had soon rejected my first impression of my fellow-diner. I found him very sympathetic. Anywhere but in England it would be impossible for two solitary men, howsoever much reduced by influenza, to spend five or six days in the same hostel and not exchange a single word. That is one of the charms of England. Had Lader and I been born and bred in any other land than England, we should have become acquainted before the end of our first evening in the small smoking-room, and have found ourselves irrevocably committed to go on talking each other throughout the rest of our visit. We might, it is true, have happened to like each other more than any one we had ever met. This off-chance may have occurred to us both, but it counted for nothing against a certain surrender of quietude and liberty. We slightly bowed to each other as we entered or left the dining-room or smoking-room, and as we met on the widespread sands or in the shop that had a small and faded circulating library. That was all. Our mutual aloofness was a positive bond between us. Had he been much older than I, the responsibility for our silence would of course have been his alone. But he was not, I judged, more than five or six years ahead of me and thus I might without impropriety have taken it on myself to perform that hard and perilous feat which English people call with a shiver breaking the ice. He had reason, therefore, to be as grateful to me as I to him. Each of us, not the less frankly because silently, recognized his obligation to the other, and when, on the last evening of my stay, the ice actually was broken, there was no ill-will between us, neither of us was to blame. It was a Sunday evening. I had been out for a long last walk, and had come in very late to dinner. Lader had left his table almost directly after I sat down to mine. When I entered the smoking-room, I found him reading a weekly review which I had bought the day before. It was a crisis. He could not silently offer, nor could I have silently accepted, sixpence. It was a crisis. We faced it like men. He made, by word of mouth, the graceful apology. Verbally, not by signs, I besought him to go on reading. 
but this of course was a vain counsel of perfection the social code forced us to talk now we obeyed it like men to reassure him that our position was not so desperate as it might seem i took the earliest opportunity to mention that i was going away early next morning in the tone of his oh are you he tried bravely to imply that he was sorry even now to hear that in a way perhaps he really was sorry we had got on so well together he and i nothing could efface the memory of that nay we seemed to be hitting it off even now influenza was not our sole theme we passed from that to the aforesaid weekly review and to a correspondence that was raging therein on faith and reason this correspondence had now reached its fourth and penultimate stage its australian stage it is hard to see why these correspondences spring up one only knows that they do spring up suddenly like street crowds there comes it would seem a moment when the whole english-speaking race is unconsciously bursting to have its say about some one thing the split infinitive or the habits of migratory birds or faith and reason or what not whatever weekly review happens at such a moment to contain a reference however remote to the theme in question reaps the storm gusts of letters come in from all corners of the british isles these are presently reinforced by canada in full blast a few weeks later the anglo-indians weigh in in due course we have the help of our australian cousins by that time however we of the mother country have got our second wind and so determined are we to make the most of it that at last even the editor suddenly loses patience and says this correspondence must now cease ed and wonders why on earth he ever allowed anything so tedious and idiotic to begin i pointed out to later one of the australian letters that had especially pleased me in the current issue it was from a melbourne man and was of the abrupt kind which declares that all your correspondents have been groping in the dark and then settles the whole matter in one short sharp flash the flash in this instance was reason is faith faith reason that is all we know on earth and all we need to know the writer then enclosed his card and was etc a melbourne man i said to later how very restful it was after influenza to read anything that meant nothing whatsoever later was inclined to take the letter more seriously than i and to be mildly metaphysical i said that for me faith and reason were two separate things and as i am no good at metaphysics however mild i offered a definite example to coax the talk onto ground where i should be safer palmistry for example i said deep down in my heart i believe in palmistry later turned in his chair you believe in palmistry i hesitated yes somehow i do why i haven't the slightest notion i can give myself all sorts of reasons for laughing at the scorn my common sense utterly rejects it of course the shape of the hand means something is more or less an index of character but the idea that my past and future are neatly mapped out on my palms i shrugged my shoulders you don't like that idea asked later in his gentle rather academic voice 
I only say it's a grotesque idea. Yet you do believe in it? I've a grotesque belief in it, yes. Are you sure your reason for calling this idea grotesque isn't merely that you dislike it? Well, I said with the thrilling hope that he was a companion in absurdity, doesn't it seem grotesque to you? It seems strange. You believe in it? Oh, absolutely. Hurrah! He smiled at my pleasure, and I, at the risk of re-entanglement in metaphysics, claimed him as standing shoulder to shoulder with me against a Melbourne man. This claim he gently disputed. You may think me very prosaic, he said, but I can't believe without evidence. Well, I'm equally prosaic and equally at a disadvantage. I can't take my own belief as evidence, and I've no other evidence to go on. He asked me if I had ever made a study of palmistry. I said I had read one of de Barol's books years ago, and one of Heron Allen's. But, he asked, had I tried to test them by the lines on my own hands, or on the hands of my friends? I confessed that my actual practice in palmistry had been of a merely passive kind, the prompt extension of my palm to anyone who would be so good as to read it and truckle for a few minutes to my egoism. I hoped later might do this. Then I almost wonder, he said with his sad smile, that you haven't lost your belief after all the nonsense you must have read. There are so many young girls who go in for palmistry. I am sure all the five foolish virgins were awfully keen on it, and used to say, you can be led but not driven, and you are likely to have a serious illness between the ages of forty-five and fifty-five, and you are by nature rather lazy, but can be very energetic by fits and starts. And most of the professionals, I am told, are as silly as the young girls. For the honour of the profession, I named three practitioners whom I had found really good at reading character. He asked whether any of them had been right about past events. I confessed that, as a matter of fact, all three of them had been right in the main. This seemed to amuse him. He asked whether any of them had predicted anything which had since come true. I confessed that all three had predicted that I should do several things which I had since done rather unexpectedly. He asked if I didn't accept this as, at any rate, a scrap of evidence. I said I could only regard it as a fluke, a rather remarkable fluke. The superiority of his sad smile was beginning to get on my nerves. I wanted him to see that he was as absurd as I. Suppose, I said, suppose for the sake of argument, that you and I are nothing but helpless automata created to do just this and that, and to have just that and this done to us. Suppose, in fact, we haven't any free will whatsoever. Is it likely or conceivable that the power which fashioned us would take the trouble to jot down and cipher on our hands just what was in store for us? Later did not answer this question. He did but annoyingly ask me another. You believe in free will? Yes, of course. I'll be hanged if I'm an automaton. And you believe in free will, just as in palmistry, without any reason? Oh, no! Everything points to our having free will. Everything? What, for instance? This rather cornered me. I dodged out as lightly as I could by saying, 
I suppose you would say it's written in my hand that I should be a believer in free will. Ah, I've no doubt it is. I held out my palms. But to my great disappointment he looked quickly away from them. He had ceased to smile. There was agitation in his voice as he explained that he never looked at people's hands now. Never now, never again. He shook his head as though to beat off some memory. I was much embarrassed by my indiscretion. I hastened to tide over the awkward moment by saying that if I could read hands I wouldn't, for fear of the awful things I might see there. Awful things, yes, he whispered, nodding at the fire. Not, I said in self-defence, that there's anything very awful, so far as I know, to be read in my hands. He turned his gaze from the fire to me. You aren't a murderer, for example? Oh, no, I replied with a nervous laugh. I am. This was more than awkward. It was a painful moment for me, and I am afraid I must have started or winced, for he instantly begged my pardon. I don't know, he exclaimed, why I said it. I'm usually a very reticent man, but sometimes, he pressed his brow, what you must think of me. I begged him to dismiss the matter from his mind. It's very good of you to say that, but I've placed myself as well as you in a false position. I ask you to believe that I'm not the sort of man who is wanted, or ever was wanted, by the police. I should be bowed out of any police station at which I gave myself up. I'm not a murderer in any bald sense of the word. No. My face must have perceptibly brightened, for, ah, he said, don't imagine I'm not a murderer at all. Morally, I am. He looked at the clock. I pointed out that the night was young. He assured me that his story was not a long one. I assured him that I hoped it was. He said I was very kind. I denied this. He warned me that what he had to tell might rather tend to stiffen my unwilling faith in palmistry and to shake my opposite and cherished faith in free will. I said, never mind. He stretched his hands pensively toward the fire. I settled myself back in my chair. My hands, he said, staring at the backs of them, are the hands of a very weak man. I dare say you know enough of palmistry to see that for yourself. You notice the slightness of the thumbs and of the two little fingers? They are the hands of a weak and oversensitive man, a man without confidence, a man who would certainly waver in an emergency. Rather Hamletish hands, he mused, and I'm like Hamlet in other respects, too. I'm no fool, and I've rather a noble disposition, and I'm unlucky. But Hamlet was luckier than I in one thing. He was a murderer by accident, whereas the murders that I committed one day fourteen years ago, for I must tell you it wasn't one murder, but many murders that I committed, were all of them due to the wretched inherent weakness of my own wretched self. I was twenty-six, no, twenty-seven years old, and a rather nondescript person as I am now. I was supposed to have been called to the bar. In fact, I believe I had been called to the bar. I hadn't listened to the call, I never intended to practice, and I never did practice. I only wanted an excuse in the eyes of the world for existing. I suppose the nearest I have ever come to practicing is now, at this moment, I am defending a murderer. 
My father had left me well enough off, provided with money. I was able to go my own desultory way, riding my hobbies where I would. I had a good stable full of hobbies. Palmistry was one of them. I was rather ashamed of this one. It seemed to me absurd, as it does to you. Like you, though, I believed in it. Unlike you, I had done more than merely read a book about it. I had read innumerable books about it. I had taken casts of all my friends' hands. I had tested and tested again the points at which Desaberoles descended from the gypsies, and, well, enough that I had gone into it all rather thoroughly, and was as sound a palmist as a man may be without giving his whole life to palmistry. One of the first things I had seen in my own hand, as soon as I had learned to read it, was that at about the age of twenty-six I should have a narrow escape from death, from a violent death. There was a clean break in the lifeline, and a square joining it, the protective square, you know. The markings were precisely the same in both hands. It was to be the narrowest escape possible, and I wasn't going to escape without injury either. That is what bothered me. There was a faint line connecting the break in the lifeline with a star on the line of health. Against that star was another square. I was to recover from the injury, whatever it might be. Still, I didn't exactly look forward to it. Soon after I had reached the age of twenty-five, I began to feel uncomfortable. The thing might be going to happen at any moment. In palmistry, you know, it is impossible to pin an event down hard and fast to one year. This particular event was to be when I was about twenty-six. It mightn't be till I was twenty-seven. It might be while I was only twenty-five. And, I used to tell myself, it mightn't be at all. My reason rebelled against the whole notion of palmistry, just as yours does. I despised my faith in the thing, just as you despise yours. I used to try not to be so ridiculously careful as I was whenever I crossed a street. I lived in London at that time. Motor-cars had not yet come in, but what hours all told I must have spent standing on curbs, very circumspect, very lamentable. It was a pity, I suppose, that I had no definite occupation, something to take me out of myself. I was one of the victims of private means. There came a time when I drove in four-wheelers rather than hansoms, and was doubtful of four-wheelers. Oh, I assure you, I was very lamentable indeed. If a railway journey could be avoided, I avoided it. My uncle had a place in Hampshire. I was very fond of him and of his wife. Theirs was the only house I ever went to stay in now. I was there for a week in November, not long after my twenty-seventh birthday. There were other people staying there, and at the end of the week we all travelled back to London together. There were six of us in the carriage. Colonel Elburn and his wife and their daughter, a girl of seventeen and another married couple, the Bretts. I had been at Winchester with Brett, but had hardly seen him since that time. He was in the Indian Civil, and was home on leave. He was sailing for India next week. His wife was to remain in England for some months, and then join him out there. They had been married five years. She was now just twenty-four years old. He told me that this was her age. The Elburns I had never met before. They were charming people. We had all been very happy together. The only trouble had been that on the last night at dinner my uncle asked me if I still went in for the gypsy business, as he always called it, 
and of course the three ladies were immensely excited and implored me to do their hands i told them it was all nonsense i said i had forgotten all i once knew i made up various excuses and the matter dropped it was quite true that i had given up reading hands i avoided anything that might remind me of what was in my own hands and so next morning it was a great bore to me when soon after the train started mrs elburn said it would be too cruel of me if i refused to do their hands now her daughter and mrs brett also said it would be brutal and they were all taking off their gloves and well of course i had to give in i went to work methodically on mrs elburn's hands in the usual way you know first sketching the character from the backs of them and there was the usual hush broken by the usual little noises grunts of assent from the husband cooings of recognition from the daughter presently i asked to see the palms and from them i filled in the details of mrs elburn's character before going on to the events in her life but while i talked i was calculating how old mrs elburn might be in my first glance at her palms i had seen that she could not have been less than twenty-five when she married the daughter was seventeen suppose the daughter had been born a year later how old would the mother be forty-three yes not less than that poor woman later looked at me why poor woman you wonder well in that first glance i had seen other things than her marriage line i had seen a very complete break in the lines of life and of fate i had seen violent death there at what age not later not possibly later than forty-three when i talked to her about the things that had happened in her girlhood the back of my brain was hard at work on those marks of catastrophe i was horribly wondering that she was still alive it was impossible that between her and that catastrophe there could be more than a few short months and all the time i was talking and i suppose i acquitted myself well for i remember that when i ceased i had a sort of ovation from the elburns it was a relief to turn to another pair of hands mrs brett was an amusing young creature and her hands were very characteristic and prettily odd in form i allowed myself to be rather whimsical about her nature and having begun in that vein i went on in it somehow even after she had turned her palms in those palms were reduplicated the signs i had seen in mrs elburn's it was as though they had been copied neatly out the only difference was in the placing of them and it was this difference that was the most horrible point the fatal age in mrs brett's hands was not past no for here she was but she might have died when she was twenty-one twenty-three seemed to be the utmost span she was twenty-four you know End of section 6